This is Stigma, where we talk with leaders from many industries about how mental health and addiction have impacted their lives. Many people suffer silently from mental illness, addiction, depression, anxiety, and trauma. They never seek help because of stigma. In this podcast, host Stephen Hayes and his guests share their stories of recovery in order to encourage others to do the same. Here's Stephen. So welcome back to another episode of the Stigma Podcast. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Jordan Brown. Jordan is doing a lot of interesting things in and around the mental health space. He is a social worker. He's a writer, a poet. Uh, He's a marketing professional, and he has a focus on mental health. He also spends time volunteering with NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, as well. He's a part of a team helping to build Answers Now, which is a solution that helps parents who are raising children with autism. Their platform helps those parents by providing access to board-certified clinicians via desktop and mobile devices for guidance to help the parents through day-to-day concerns that they face. Jordan has written several articles on many topics surrounding mental health. His writing can be found on his website, which is nerve10.com, and I'll provide that as well as his Twitter handle uh, and website in the show notes. And I'll also provide a link to his newsletter uh, where he distributes some, some meaningful and authentic mental health information. And with that, thank you, Jordan, for, for coming on. It's, it's great to have you. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to happy to do it. Really feel privileged to have you here. And, you know, I'd love to start with, you know, kind of a little bit more about your background and and how you found your way into the mental health space. Yeah, well, my background's a little bit all over the place, but I kind of feel like the best stories start that way or the the people that I end up uh, like connecting with that they their background meanders about. And I think that's true for me as well. I uh, did not start in mental health. I think like a lot of people, I got involved with mental health because of a personal connection. It was first because my my mom was having some mental health issues pretty much out of nowhere, it started to have some issues that I did not see when I was uh, younger. And it it happened pretty quickly after the, in quick succession, her parents, my mom's parents uh, died. So my grandparents, and there were definitely some mental health issues that I I recognize now for my, my grandfather who uh, likely had bipolar and addiction issues. I mean, he, he drank, I I remember drank every day when I was uh, over at their house growing up in Ohio and so when they died pretty quickly, I, I think it was in a span of two years, things started to change for my mom. And there were some some scary things that I noticed. I just happened to be home at the time after college. So this was around 2009. I was waiting to go into the Peace Corps in Guatemala. And I feel lucky that I was there. Uh, but she started doing things that were just not characteristic of her. Like she was um, spending money excessively she would, uh, I, I came home one day and there was like a digital camera on the, the table and she had taken just hundreds of pictures of things around the house and, and not like normal pictures, but pictures of like uh, underneath the car, like the tire or the bottom of a toilet and just huh. really thing, strange things that I, I kind of felt like it was in a, a horror movie. And I know it's just one small snippet, but it, it all came to a head when a day before Thanksgiving, she was threatening to, to leave. And we lived in upstate New York. That's where I grew up. And she was threatening to go to Ohio and said she had to go there, that she was the only one that could help her family. She needed to get there the day of Thanksgiving. So she was going to drive through the night. And it just didn't make any sense. And 
my mom was just the still is the, just the kindest person, but she was she was like yelling and cursing at my dad and and lunged at him at one point and just and, and cursed at him and she never did that. And I said, you know, this is it. This has been months of of just scary stuff and it was actually me who forced her to go into a hospital that night and said that I'd have to, I would call the cops if she tried to leave. And so that was the start of it. Um, she did uh, get admitted. Thankfully, she almost wasn't going to, but I had to say, and I felt horrible for a while saying that I, I felt like she was a danger to herself because of just some of the things that happened when she was driving and like it kind of swerving in the traffic and then not being safe. Um, so th- that started it. I ended up going into Peace Corps, coming back uh, early because of, that's another story, some things that happened. Uh, basically, we was just too sick. And so I found the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Montana and took the course, this family to family course, which is a 12 week course, mainly for my mom to learn how to better support her. But what I realized in the process is that I had a lot of issues that I was working on myself. And uh, I had just actually was in the process of recovering from open heart surgery. This happened in 2012. I think right before I turned 25, I had this, this fluke thing happen. I was an athlete my whole life, just very healthy, but I had to have sudden open heart surgery. And, and this will kind of wrap up this part of my story is that they told me that, you know, that this recovery is going to be hard. There's certain things you can't do. You can't lift weights for a couple of weeks after you can't drive in the front seat. You're going to have to have your, your girlfriend drive you. And I said, okay, I can, I can deal with that. And actually the physical recovery wasn't that bad. I had dealt with pain before and broken bones, but it was the emotional recovery that was just horrendous. Uh, I had, I felt very ashamed out of nowhere, just thinking through moments of how I'd failed myself and people in my life. Um, I've always had OCD, I'd say to a, to a lesser extent. And I give you examples of that, but it really shot through the roof after this. And I was dealing with really intrusive thoughts all the time. I was picking at my skin like nonstop, just like out of control things and and suicidal thoughts emerged too after this. Um, So I really wish someone would have talked to me about it. And it was through this journey and eventually getting into the National Alliance of Mental Illness that I realized, hey, I actually might have a way of communicating with people to get through some tough challenges because I I definitely had to go through some myself. Yeah, no, that's... That sounds like quite the story. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in your blog post about the heart surgery and the recovery was that, you know, like you said, the emotional challenges were harder than the physical challenges. Would you be willing to share a little bit more about that recovery process? I mean, what what was the the stuff that was really hard emotionally to deal with? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. Now, I'm definitely happy. I'm at a point where I feel like I've processed it and I think talking about these stories, people can see whether they haven't, whether they've dealt with the similar thing or not, people can see the truth in it. I, I really feel like mental health issues lie on a spectrum. Um, so it's not like either you are mentally ill or you are not. Uh, to, there are things that go on that can move you back and forth along that spectrum as you go about your life. But for me, it was, um, I had, I've always had anxiety. I realized that now ever since I was a little kid and OCD symptoms, like I was telling you, um, but I, I started to deal with depression as well. A couple months after my heart surgery, I suddenly just stopped sleeping. And uh, I, I couldn't really pinpoint any one thing that was the cause of it. And, and now I realize that it's kind of silly to try to 
say there was only this one thing that led to it because that's often not how mental health issues come up. But it was a period about four to five months where I really was not getting any sleep. And even if I did fall asleep, maybe I'd wake up a couple hours later and I never felt rested. And, and that alone can just wreak havoc on your mind. I, I, I talk to people that if you, if you don't have your, if you're not sleeping, you're not going to have your mental health. And so I was trying to hold it all together. Uh, be, I was teaching this family to family course now that I once took for NAMI. I was leading family support groups. I had a job and two different mental health jobs at that point. So I knew the system pretty well, but I was struggling to find help. Uh, and uh, like I told you, these thoughts were, I just felt like a horrible person. I felt like I had let myself down and I'd never really done anything that bad. It's not like it's, it, it wasn't even rational. I would just think to times in college were like, oh, I drank too much and I did this. And this is these are some of the intrusive thoughts I was telling you about uh, is that I always had intrusive thoughts, but they just got to the a hundredth degree. They were so much worse. And I would perseverate. I would fixate on these thoughts for, for hours sometimes. Uh, same with like uh, skin picking too, that it's kind of an embarrassing thing to talk about. A lot of people will just assume or, and I don't, I don't tend to write about it. I plan to write about it one day, but people probably wonder like, why don't you just not do that? But again, it's like OCD and anxiety, you know, it's not a good thing to do, but it's sometimes that's just how your brain's wired in, or that's what's going on that day. You can't control it. So it was a lot of those things. And there's much more. I mean, as the sleeping wore on, I was uh, the lack of sleeping, I should say, wore on uh, suicidal thoughts definitely got worse. Um, and it was a scary time. I I, yeah. I I found help from a therapist that I had, and he was good for relationship issues and like understanding just like some of the issues that came out of growing up in my family. Um, but essentially, when I t- kept telling him that I wasn't sleeping and I still felt depressed, uh, he basically f- like fired me as a, a client and just told me to go somewhere else. And that was a bad time. Uh, I really didn't feel like the system was helping me at all. So how did you handle that? What did you do with the, when the therapist kind of kicked you to the curb? Well, you, what ended up happening and when I was in Montana, I've shared this, uh, but I haven't really shared this as much where I live now in Virginia, but I'm totally open with it is that it got so bad where I wasn't getting help and I wasn't sleeping. And I kept remembering like, and I was crying a lot, but just for no reason, a, a typical sign of uh, depression, but I ended up, uh, and I'm glad I did this. I was getting so failed by the system and I was so scared that I was going to hurt myself that I ended up going to the ER and I actually got admitted to the behavioral health unit in Montana. It's the best thing that happened to me. Uh, finally, some, some qualified help. And I had a psychiatrist there who, because I was working with a psychiatrist, I think a year or so before, who was really quite bad. Um, she was just really negative, really condescending, didn't listen to me at all. I like to think that I have some self-awareness about my own life. And she just, you know, was pretty rude, to be honest, and gave me medicine that made stuff a lot worse. Uh, And I had that case with other doctors, too, which just prescribed all kinds of things that made suicidal thoughts worse. And I just really felt like it wasn't heard. So when I went into the hospital, it was great because I got a psychiatrist who knew exactly what I was dealing with. She knew that a lot of my issues were like from OCD symptoms, and she prescribed uh, Paxil which I'm not a huge medicine person, but it absolutely worked. It was almost like days later that I felt like for the first time since childhood that I didn't have intrusive thoughts all the time. And it was really remarkable. And I still take that, not a huge dose, 
Uh, but to this day, I think about four years later. And so it was having the courage, although I felt like a huge failure at the time to say, this is really bad. I don't feel like I'm getting any of the help that I need. And basically went there crying with my girlfriend, now wife at the time. But lo and behold, it was, it was one of the best decisions I've made in my life. Yeah, that's, that's, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, this is actually the first podcast I've shared that story. I've told it uh, in like some, some uh, talks I've done, but yeah, you got it out of me. So I, I'm glad to put that out there. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. You know, one of the things you just mentioned was, you know, take the, the medications you were taking and it brought to mind, you know, I think people can be, it's, and it's also in one of your blog posts about being inactive or not being proactive. And I was wondering, you know, what else do you do other than meds to be proactive about your mental wellness? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just medication. I would say that's a very small part. Sometimes it's necessary to get to a point of stability where you can do the the work that you really need to do. But I'm all about being proactive and staying on top of my mental health. One of the huge things, like I've talked about, is making sure I get enough sleep. I take that very seriously. I, I know that in the startup world, there are a lot of people who think they can get by on little sleep and I just don't find that to be true. Yeah, there are some nights where you got to gotta pull an all-nighter. You got to work really hard. We were in a, a tech incubator, tech accelerator down in Raleigh for a little bit. And it, yeah, there were some nights that I did that. But if I go long periods without sleep, I know mental health issues will follow. It's just, it's in my genetic makeup. It's it's what led to my mom's issues. She They thought she had bipolar, but actually it was probably just lack of sleep that led to psychosis, which was going on when forced her into a hospital. Um, so making sure I, I practice good sleep hygiene, going to bed around the same night, around the same time every night, getting up around the same time, um, making sure that I'm turning off technology at least an hour beforehand. I'm also a big proponent of meditating. I think that's that's been a huge help for me. I've done that pretty consistently for years now, and it's hard to convince someone who hasn't tried it. But I really do feel like mindfulness that I get from meditation is a bit of a superpower. I feel like it changes the quality of my life. It, it allows me to be more present, to, to see things differently, and just pick up on things that that other thing other people are, might be missing in meetings or what have you. Uh, I've always been a really curious person and interested in body language and people, but having the energy to be present in the moment is, is a huge differentiator for me. And then also basic things like, and this is a list that People, I know they want to hear some fancy technique, but it's a lot of the basics that you got to get right before you move on to techniques and uh, different tools. It's getting enough exercise so that you're tired enough when you do go to bed at night. And it doesn't have to be anything ridiculous. I, I just, I love walking and hiking and I, I just try to do that every day. I'm a, I walk all over the place. And so I, I always say that whatever you, you can commit to, that's the thing you should do. You don't have to do a lot, just something that fits into your life. And so I stick to the fundamentals. And then uh, if I read something in a book, I'm an avid reader. I probably read, try to read like 50 to 80 books a year. Uh, I'll implement some things I could talk about later, but focusing on the basics is a good place to start. That's really great. That's a great list. And thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I was just, as you were sharing that list, I was also thinking about how much gratitude I have for you coming on here and talking about these topics. And I had noticed one of your tweets uh, from, I don't know, maybe a week or two ago uh, about 
how we have an ethical responsibility to talk about mental health. Right. And so I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that because I, I feel compelled to share my story with people every chance I get in the hopes that if they need help, they know that I'm a place where they can go get it. Or if they know someone who needs help, that they know that they can send that person to me or send me to that person. And so I wanted to kind of hear your thoughts, uh, you know, dive a little bit deeper into this ethical responsibility to talk about it. Yeah. That, no, I'm glad you brought that up because I haven't been using that language for too long. But the more I think about it, I think it is that important. I'm a fairly intense person just with what I think about and even more so after my heart surgery, which I feel like that whole thing was a rebirth for me and along with this mental health issues. But believe it or not, I think it is, I got it from someone and maybe you've come across this guy and sure in the work that you do um, from uh, Grant Cardone and the 10 times rule, 10 X rule. It's, it's actually a pretty good book. It's not the best I've ever read, but it, it's pretty good idea for um, achieving things by putting in just huge amounts of effort, 10 times more than you think you would need to. And I remember him talking in his book that like he feels like he has an ethical responsibility to work hard, to like provide for his family, that it's, it's that serious for him, that he's not going to cut any corners. That And at first, and I think because I saw a little bit of him and myself and the intensity, and you know how that is when uh, the things that, anno- that annoy us tend to be issues that we haven't fully resolved in ourselves. So I was kind of annoyed that he was being so intense and using this. But uh, the more I thought on that and I meditated on that, I, I realized he had a pretty good point. We can't just let mental health issues slide. Uh, we don't do that for physical health. Um, if someone has cancer or some other physical health problem, we rush to their side. And something that it gets talked about a lot and NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, at least in the chapter in Montana that I was involved with, is that mental health issues aren't casserole illnesses. So if you're in the hospital for a mental health issue, people get pretty weird about it. I remember that's the case with my mom. I was there every day helping her. Um, but I remember her family, they, you know, they didn't really know what was going on and weren't so quick to support. Uh, so you don't really get that casserole in the hospital for a mental health issue that you might in a physical health issue. And it needs to be that important. I've done some some really great work, and I'm going to go all over the place, but I love these kind of conversations because it makes me remember just what what I've learned about in my life. I One of my favorite places that I've ever worked was when I was managing a federal grant in Montana uh, to implement mental health programs in, in a couple different school districts. And I got to work on the Blackfeet Reservation. And I remember having these, like doing these meetings, these big community meetings, and we were talking about mental health and the importance. And some of the elders were saying, like, I don't get why you, I don't know if they said you people, but they said, but like people from outside the community, I don't know why it's such a big deal. This is just something that's apparent. It's just kind of self-evident. Of course, mental health is just connected to everything that we're doing. Why wouldn't it be a big issue? Like, why wouldn't we spend this much time focusing on it? Um, we It's a big part of us, but it's funny that we need like this grant to make it a priority for the state. I thought that was really poignant because it's true. It should be just as important as everything else. But I think because of stigma, like like you're focusing on, it really isn't. Yeah. What you know, I like to ask people when the topic comes up on stigma, how do we defeat it or reduce it? Is it just talking about it or there, what else should we be doing? It's a big part of it. I think that, yes, one, we have to talk about it. Uh, but two, I think we also have to tell 
uncomfortable stories. Like we'll talk about it to a certain extent and we'll do campaigns that I think feel safe, but we don't really give people a voice who are dealing with serious mental illness. We, we, and I'm talking about like maybe pretty severe schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, addiction issues. I, I think that's a huge part of it. Addiction uh, and mental health issues are co-occurring issues for the right. most part. Uh, I forget the percentage, but I, I'm sure you know, and you, since you do this work and you're investing in this, it's just, it's so common and, and it's so linked, addiction is so linked to trauma as well. And we're not talking about that enough. Instead, in this country, especially, we punish people for that. It's, it's, it's absolutely too punitive and we're not going to get anywhere until we openly talk about it as a health issue that it is. And so I think it's just extremely honest conversations but I don't see the platform to do that right now. Uh, you might have all these conversations on Twitter, and that's a really good community to be open. But it, it hasn't hit the mainstream yet. There, you still are seeing the same old stereotypes, I think, in on TV and movies, and we have to get past that point. I think there's so much we can do to destigmatize. And yes, you're right. There's, according to Nami, there's 20.2 million adults in the U.S. in 2018 experienced a substance abuse disorder, and uh, half of those had co-occurring mental illness. Right. Just over half. So yeah, it's, it's, there's there's a lot going on there. Yeah, it's it's a ton. And, you know, as far as, you know, what you said about Twitter, I think that's a great place to be talking about it. But I think there's I think there's other things I want to see. You know, it's it's when you walk by Soul Cycle, you don't you don't say, oh, look at those idiots going in there to ride bicycles. Right. You know? So, because we've, we've made exercising cool, it's okay to talk about needing to exercise. So we have to make it okay to talk about our feelings and be vulnerable with each other. Yes. I want to see uh, therapy clinics popping up on fifth Avenue with giant glass windows in the front of them where it's cool to walk in there and get therapy as opposed to having to, you know, drive 20 minutes and go into some back alley somewhere and go up an elevator and go to the end of the hallway and go through four doors. And right. now you found your therapist in their cheap office space. Right. We need to change the way we deliver the solution in order, in addition to just talking about it. And that, that's one of the things I, I, I want to see personally. So I'll get off of my soapbox. I'm, no, that's definitely, I, I will prop up your soapbox even more because I think that's so important that, uh, I like having these kind of conversations because if I talk about this in the formal education world, uh, my grad program, for instance, or in even mental health organizations, it's always like chipping away at what's already a broken system. I think we drastically need to reform the system. So, so sometimes I, I think I get on the, the wrong side of things because I'm, I'm talking about totally wanting to disrupt it. But clearly what we're doing right now is not working. It's not even really a semblance of a functioning system. It's just kind of these different parts that don't talk with each other. So I actually like your idea of opening it up and having like just windows that you can see in. But I know the first thing that a lot of professionals will say is like, well, uh, you, we have laws. I mean, you have to be safe and you can't, uh, we have HIPAA and you, you can't talk about any of these things. Uh, but HIPAA, it, even though it had good intentions, um, it makes it very difficult to communicate when you should just be able to openly communicate about mm -hmm. mental health uh, issues. And so that really frustrates me. And 
I I agree with you. I, I could go on and on and on too. Oh, I but. could too. The legisl- I mean, the the federal government since 1963 has done everything they can to try to help, and everything they've done has destroyed mental health care in this country. And it's not like it's a bad president here or a bad president there, Congress or this party or mm-hmm. that party. People just don't know what to do. And I think intentions are always good, but. I think what it's going to take to fix the system is a new system. I think tech is going to have to come up with solutions for mental health and addiction recovery that are outside of the healthcare system, that are outside of the insurance world. And then eventually the insurance companies and the healthcare providers are going to come around and say, okay, you guys got it right and we'll acquire all of that. And so that's that's a really big part of my thesis in starting a fund to invest in these solutions is that I, I think tech has to come up with a new system. And I think that's what's happening. Yeah, I th- I think it is happening, and I'm really glad that you said that outside of the insurance because I w- the insurance industry because I wasn't sure where you were going to fall on that, but I agree with you. the The money, if you watch where the money goes, same with politics, you'll you'll notice a lot of problems are derived from just who is getting funded or who controls the flow of money. Um, I really was frustrated with one of the previous health insurance I pl- plans I had. A regular copay was like 30 bucks, but it was like 80 bucks for a mental health copay, which I guess that doesn't count as regular health, uh, some obscure outlying issue that is just too expensive. Uh, and then for other insurance plans I've had, these companies would fight to, they didn't want to pay for a mental health care. They, they would fight to not have to cover that. And I just think that's wrong um, in trying to legislate while that's good, I think, like you're saying, it's got to be a bottom-up approach. It's got to be a grassroots effort. What you say, grassrootsy, and yeah. um, and then it'll just appear out of nowhere, and it'll be so big and it'll be so uh, prevalent that we won't be able to escape that. And I don't mean that in like a like a real uh, ominous way, but it's got to be something that people just see a self-evident kind of like the, the, the black feet elders that I was talking about. And then it's there. And we, then all of a sudden we couldn't live without it. Cause like some of these, you know, social media apps that we have that have dubious effects on mental health. Yeah. And I think that, I think Congress is going to go after the social media apps. I mean, they already are. Um, so I think that's yeah, going to be, are. I don't think that social media will look like it does right now in 10 years. I think that, and as far as what you were saying about insurance, I think that the mental health solutions, I mean, look, I know what worked for me. What worked for me, getting in a room with other broken people and being vulnerable and sharing my deepest, darkest secrets and doing mm-hmm. that over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And that's that's ultimately what led me to some sense of sanity. And I think, you know, and medication. I mean, my psychiatrist has deserves a lot of credit. Um, multiple psychiatrists that I've seen both at rehab and out, out in the real world, if you want to call it that. Uh-huh. But I mean, look, getting people away from their tech and into rooms with each other and sh- being vulnerable with each other. I think there's gonna be a lot of solutions around that Yeah, because it, it, like one of the ways I describe it is unwinding the last 20 years of technological development, right? This, the next solutions are going to be, that's all they're going to have to do is just unwind Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant what you said. I think that being vulnerable is a huge part of what I try to model on social media and in my writing because I know it works. Absolutely is the same for me. It's worked for me. And I think people are just really, they're dying for that kind of 
conversation. We don't, and especially men, yep. like growing up, I played sports and I, I, I definitely felt like an outcast. Although I did well in sports, I think that's what helped me. Like I would still get bullied because I was definitely more sensitive than other guys and I had other interests and liked writing and, you know, the arts. And that's just not something that I think men are typically encouraged to talk about. Uh, and so I hope I can just be a model for other guys, young boys. Uh, that's why I've liked therapy work, although I'm not doing therapy now. I'm working in uh, psychiatric hospitals. I love that kind of work because whether you're working with youth or you're working with in, I would say, like the co-occurring unit, that was my favorite place to work when I worked at a, a hospital here in Richmond, Virginia, because you just get people who are real. And they're, they're sizing you up. It, a lot of people say this is their least favorite place to work because it's just, it can be intimidating. Uh, and there could be people who are calling you out. But if you're authentic, you'll be just fine there. And I just love the conversations there because for the most part, people are just hurting. And they're not, you know, they, they, they didn't just wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be a jerk to whoever I see. It's a lifetime of trauma and addiction and really tough issues that, I would argue anyone would respond in a similar way if you work with people who have addiction issues. I don't know. And maybe you can comment on that too. It's just, there's, there's a lot of judgment without really getting to know people's stories. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us were set up to fail. I think a lot of us had trauma early in our lives, intentional or unintentional, and we never dealt with it. We never learned anything other than this model of tough guy, which is suck it up. And doesn't matter if you need water. doesn't matter if it's hot outside. doesn't matter if you need to pull an all nighter for your investment banking job or for your startup, be it, you know, you don't need sleep. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the most successful people work the hardest. So if you want to be successful, suck it up. That mentality has destroyed the fabric of humanity, not only in our country, but around the world. And it's unacceptable. And uh, speaking out about, you know, things like what you just said about your, you know, the, the pressure to pull all nighters with it's a badge of honor, you know, as a startup or as a part of a startup, that's, that's BS. That's not cool. Uh-huh. It's not cool to pull an all nighter and put your yeah. mental health in jeopardy. Therefore put your company and your investors in jeopardy. No. And, and I should clarify that, uh, answers now that we, so our CEO and leadership d- does not support that kind of, uh, it, you know, we we all have to work hard. Right, we're right. still an early stage startup, but yeah, we're trying to be different about that because it is possible to be a balanced life. And if you are getting sleep, you're going to work better. You're going to work harder. Um, you just have to be more balanced. And um, I, I think you know that if if you're just grinding it out with little sleep for days and days and days, that's going to come back to haunt you. That That's not sustainable. That's very unhealthy for me. I'm type one bipolar. So I need my sleep. I need my lithium. Right. I, I, I don't do well in an unbalanced situation at all. Right. So for me, I, I have to protect my sleep to the point where, you know, sometimes I have to cancel morning meetings because I need to stay in bed an extra couple hours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if that sets me back professionally or whatever, then so be it. Uh, it's better than me, you know, going, you know, going off the reservation and, and losing my life. Right. So right. you know, I'm going to protect that like it, like it's my life. So, yeah, I just think that it's this, it, and you're right about men specifically. I don't want to discriminate, but it's, it's almost like men just are told you're not allowed to be vulnerable and share. Right. And I'm sure women feel the same pressures, but as a dude, I grew up playing sports and I grew up around that mentality and, it's really strange to get to 38, 39 years old when I went to rehab 
and be told, Hey, guess what? It's cool. It's actually really cool to open up and share, spill your guts. Right. And I wish it, I wish it didn't take me that long. I wish it didn't take me having to go to rehab to figure that out. I was just going to say that it shouldn't get to a point, but, but that happens frequently with mental health as opposed to right quote unquote regular health issues is that it often takes a crisis. And, and I've worked with a lot of families in the national Alliance of mental illness where their sons or daughters didn't get help until they got arrested or something just horrible happened. And it didn't need to get to that point. It, it shouldn't require like going to jail to finally get mental health care uh, when they've just been trying and trying and trying, but too often it does. And, like we've been talking about, I think it's just this systemic culture and, and, and it's worse for some groups. I'll get a lot of people who will reach out, whether on LinkedIn or Twitter, who are, there's like some men of color, say like growing up in, in Texas as a black man, absolutely could not <laughs> talk about this stuff. And now still like, as they want to write about it and talk about it, there's still that judgment, even though they don't live in the state anymore. And so I think that kind of, that kind of, attitude stays with you, whether you try to shed yourself of it or not. And so it's going to take a whole societal effort. There's no doubt. And, you know, one of the things I noticed, so when we talk about vulnerability and sharing, you know, I think it was back in June, you you wrote a blog post and it was, it was about this spectrum about how mental health is a spectrum from connection to disconnection. I had never heard that before. And I, I really love that concept. It resonated with me. Oh, really? And, you know, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on, on that because I, when I found connection with the recovery community, man, it radically changed my life. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious how you came to that realization and, and, and if you could ex, ex, you know, expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, of course. I'm so glad that you found that. I'm, I'm, it's not always easy, but, and I don't think we, we talk about it in this way enough. I've definitely, I've probably been exposed to it just through mental health reading and some of the programs I've been in, but, but still it's not that common. I'm a big time thinker. I don't get lost in my head like I used to, but I try to be intentional about my thinking. So if I'm going on a long walk, yeah, I'll, I'll do some thinking about something that I'm choosing to think about, not an intrusive thought that totally got me sidetracked. Um, but I was thinking about when I wasn't sleeping and I dealt with that deep depression, which I had never experienced depression before. And that is probably the worst mental health experience I've had other than some OCD symptoms that can really get you going for a long time. Depression for me was a total lack of connection. I remember walking around Helena, Montana and just seeing people laughing or talking and thinking like, how could anyone find anything funny about life? Or like, I just remember feeling so disconnected from people from what they were talking about. Like if someone invited me somewhere, I, I just, I, I felt like I couldn't function. Like I couldn't even do small talk in a grocery store because it just felt so difficult. Um, I felt like my life was not my own. I just felt almost outside of my body. Like I, I really didn't have control over my own faculties. And so as I got to thinking about all that, my experience of depression and anxiety, it was mainly not feeling connected. And I found the connection when I got involved with NAMI and I started teaching classes and I, I pursued my interest to get mental health jobs, even though I'd never worked in the mental health field. It was NAMI that made me realize that I maybe had something I could offer people. And so I just went for it. And probably from 2011, 2012 on, I've just been following my heart uh, because I, I used to work in politics. I used to work consulting firms and different things like that. 
And yeah, it's a way to get things done, but it, it didn't feel right in my heart. Like I knew there had to be more than that. And so I'm always looking for things that I feel like are meaningful to me. And mental health, without a doubt, is, is the most meaningful thing for me, probably because of my, my story, but it helps me feel connected. Even if I'm not always working with people, I know what I'm writing. Someone out there probably is going to resonate with it. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's really great. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's going to be helpful for people to hear that. I hope so. Uh, one one of the things I didn't cover here, and I'd love to have you, you kind of wrap things up with is, you know, I, I didn't really ask you much about your startup. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about, about what you guys are doing. Yeah, of course. And that's totally okay. That happens as we're having good conversations. But the startup I work for is, it's kind of a serendipitous way of things, which has been my life over the last five or six years. I went to grad school uh, to become a social worker because I love the mental health field and I felt that was the best way to move up. You kind of plateau if you don't have a graduate degree. So I moved from Montana, from my wife, we moved out to Richmond where she was born and had connections there because uh, VCU has a really good social work program. And I ended up meeting my now, I guess, boss, uh, not technically boss, but CEO of this organization, Answers Now, through the this graduate program. He was the like a supervisor because one of the internships I had, they didn't have a social worker who could be one. So I got connected with him. And he saw just through some of the stuff I was creating for myself, like my mental health site, nerve10.com, and all the writing I did that I just had a natural way of finding followers online and building a community. And although I didn't have a formal marketing background, I've kind of done my own marketing just with some of my own personal projects. And he felt like I might be a good fit for, for answers now. And I'm glad he did take a chance because it has been wonderful. It's been a great learning opportunity and I just learned so much about marketing and we've been doing, we've been doing well. And so what answers now is the first app that I know of that connects parents of children with autism with their very own board certified clinicians. So that's a big thing is that we have really highly qualified clinicians that parents can message with on the app that we have. And we're very soon rolling out our official pricing next week and new features. So I won't, uh, unveil all of that now. Um, but it has been a wonderful way to increase accessibility to healthcare for something I feel passionate about. My first mental health job, I was working in a middle school in Helena, Montana. And my, the, my favorite students that I worked with, everyone had to have a severe emotional disturbance diagnosis. So a typical mental health diagnosis, but I, I love working in the special ed classroom. And I think it comes back to those kids were just so real. They were so honest. And there was just kind of like a unique joy that those kids had that when this popped up, it felt like the right job to take. I just graduated with a social work degree and I took a job with a hospital that I talked to you about. I'd done one of my internships there at this psychiatric hospital, but I just felt like I needed to be doing this instead. And so for about 11, 12 months, I've been working with, with Answers Now, which is at Get Answers Now dot com and it has been a wild ride it's not easy working in the startup yeah. world it's, the, it's my first job but things have a way of uh, going all right when you don't feel like it's work and uh, this just really feels like i'm making a difference and i'm getting caregivers and their children with autism who who can't always find treatment and qualified treatment at that whether they're in a rural area or they just 
they're on a wait list for 12 months to get uh, autism clinician. This is kind of leveling that playing field. And it's been really amazing to, to see the stories that come out of this because I'm the, my official title is head of customer happiness. So I get to talk with different parents and then do customer service and, and just see how they've been impacted by this. Uh, and so that's what it's all about. Just doing things like that, that really make a difference for people. Yeah, that's really special. Well, that sounds great. And I'm glad you guys are doing that work. And I can't wait to learn more about the business. I can't wait to see how, how it how it grows and how it changes people's lives. And so I'm, I'm excited for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So a big thank you to Jordan for coming on today. I think this conversation will be helpful to a lot of people in many ways. I'm grateful that he came on and took his time to share and be vulnerable with us. For our listeners, as a reminder, you can connect directly with Jordan on Twitter at jpbrown5. You can also find more of his writings and his work at his website, which is nerve10, that's the number 10.com. And I'll post a link in the show notes so you can find that as well as his newsletter. And if you like this episode, please feel free to share it on social media. I'd also be very grateful if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the Stigma Podcast on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. It really helps us and our show a lot in the rankings, and it would be greatly appreciated. If you have any other comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. And you can connect with us on Twitter at StigmaCast, and you can find us on our website at stigmapodcast.com. Please let us know your thoughts on the episode. Thank you.